welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In this episode, Andrew and I were joined by our wonderful colleague, Clark Miller, from the School for the Future of Innovation and Society. Clark has been on the podcast a few times now, and since the presidential election uh, occurred, we had wanted to spend some more time with Clark to revisit what it is that we've learned about elections as knowledge systems or uh, electoral systems as knowledge systems. And in thinking through the lens of the outcomes of the 2016 presidential election, we finally had that chance. So we talk about elections, electoral technologies, what the future could look like. Um, We talk about truth. We talk about trust. This was... I don't know if I would say it was a wide-ranging conversation, but it certainly moved in a few directions that we weren't really expecting when we scheduled the time to talk with Clark. So before we begin, as always, please uh, subscribe to the Future Out Loud podcast. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you like to subscribe to podcasts. You can also let us know what you think. And we really like to know what you think about our podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Future Out Loud. You can also find us on Facebook. We have a page at Future Out Loud. Uh, We have show notes in a couple of locations, including sfis.asu.edu forward slash future out loud and sfis sorry riskinnovation.asu.edu forward slash future out loud please tell your friends about the future out loud podcast and if you feel like maybe all of your friends already know about the future out loud podcast well tell somebody who's not your friend yet and maybe they will be your friend or tell somebody who maybe you think they're not your friend specifically uh, and maybe they will continue to be your enemy but at least they'll be informed about the future of science technology and innovation as always thank you for listening hi clark hi how are you good i am doing well hi so is there anything interesting left to talk about elections? I think there are three things. Go on, that. I, I figured you would have a list. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one, one is just, you know, I mean, in this world in which everyone seems to believe that uh, facts have gone out the window, uh, the electoral knowledge system, which is one of the most complicated and, and seemingly Uh, not entirely trusted by lots of people system that we've got for producing facts nonetheless again once again has produced a fact that everyone seems to be buying into namely that uh, Trump is president. Is it a true fact which is something that we've been saying in my house more and more often. Did you turn off the oven? Yes and that was a true fact. Yes. Well it is a fact that the Electoral College voted him and the Electoral College based their votes on the, um, the local vote. That is a so true fact. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. And there, although uh, there was this brief hiatus where uh, it looked like perhaps uh, 
the Green Party candidates were going to uh, call for a recount in a couple of right. states. The courts have once again done what the courts almost always do in the United States, which is to declare that if there aren't enough votes at stake for you to win, mm-hmm. we're not going to listen to Wait, this. Wasn't there a recount in uh, Wisconsin, I thought though? they completed the recount in Wisconsin. Yeah. yeah. Trump came out even better. Yeah, yes, like by yeah. 10,000, he picked up 10,000 votes or something. Yes, yeah, well, this would, that would be sort of typical. And, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but but so, yeah. you're right. We, we have a system that's ended up with a result, and whether you like it or not, it's, right. it's a result. The... Um, the second thing uh, worth talking about, um, I mean, let's step back a minute to the first. Okay. Uh, I think that there is, you know, what remains the case is that there is an undercurrent of distrust. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we see that uh, growing, continuing to grow around the question of hacking the election. Right. Yeah. Uh, and there, the complete decentralization of the system, the relative lack of transparency associated with uh, the standards that the machines have to live up to, mm-hmm. um, the fact that the companies that make both the machines and the, the systems that count the votes off the machines and tally them all up uh, tend to be privately held, mm-hmm. uh, right. non-transparent uh, right. companies. And no all of that is mitigating against rebuilding trust. Right. right. That we have a system that is hack-proof and that right. we couldn't, in principle, do anything Although, systematic. Interestingly, about. because it is this sort of strange sort of mashup of, of different parts of the system, we were talking to Deb Stromsky recently, yeah. um, talking about complex systems. Yeah. And I think she would have argued that because you've got all these sort of different multiple nodes, it's actually quite a resilient system. So somebody may be able to hack part of it, but it's actually very hard for somebody to have widespread influence. So certainly that's been the case with respect to the non-computerized versions right. Right. Um, to present, right? You would have had to have a systematic organization that was mm-hmm. stuffing ballot boxes in multiple locations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, those would have had to be been, been selected carefully and appropriately and you would have had they would have had to turn out to be the right places to stop ballot boxes right right? so that that made it very hard uh, in the past Uh, I I am increasingly uh, concerned that what is coming are uh, not just the the garden variety cyber hacks Mm -hmm. but uh, but organized cyber hacks. You don't have to be in multiple places to hack multiple place to system right. yeah. anymore. Um, we are increasingly seeing um, AI capabilities that allow people to understand complex topographies much yeah. better than they have been able to and, before. And also, so I don't think yeah. it's here yet, yeah. but I think, and, you and, know. And before we get on to your second point, <coughs> One of the, the concerns to me is we've now put this plausible reality on the table that somebody, if they wanted to seriously disrupt the system, could hack it. Could well, do. the we, other thing, too, when we think about systems, and should probably talk to Deb Stromsky about this, about this, but the Electoral College setup 
fundamentally remove some of the redundancy and thus resilience from the complex system if you believe in, you know, system theory in that way. I don't understand what you're saying. So because the, the electoral college system says, yes, we've got all of these votes from all of these precincts, but in order to um, affect the election writ large, they must, at every state level, funnel through this single node, right? right? right. Um, so that funneling and that single point of connection removes a so, whole lot so of So I, I, I would disagree with that, and the reason I would disagree with that, sorry, were you gonna disagree Well, no, I was that? gonna disagree as well. So, <laughs> no, so okay. you, you go first. Bring it, bring it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, on this particular issue, on this particular interest, and this isn't about sort of system dynamics, but this is about the distinction between the computerized parts of the networks and the human parts of the networks, mm -hmm. right? The president is ultimately decided by the votes of the electoral college. Mm -hmm. um, and so the electors could, in principle, act in a fashion to um, redress problems created in the computerized right, systems, right? right? In yeah. other words, we actually don't have to know anything about who voted for whom in any of the states, and we can still have an electoral college vote, and we can still have a president. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, yeah. so even in the case of a massive systems failure on the electronic side, mm -hmm. at the moment, the electoral college could, in principle, Sure. Whether they could impact that, that, and that's what I was going to say. It, it, it was always designed as a safeguard, and to a certain extent, it mm -hmm. still is, or uh, the stage gates within the process. Right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If it was to function correctly, so functioning correctly, if something went drastically wrong with uh, the, the ballot system, the electoral college can self-correct that. In principle, we don't see that happening because they just go with what they've been told to vote. Right. Well, and legally, they're required to, although, mm -hmm. you know, there, Th there is Michael Moore tried there. hard yes. to put it into that, or right, right. offer a bridge but, around that. But, but what really, so you've actually got me quite worried now, because I would argue that we've had, or people have actually had the ability to hack the system for some time now. Of course. But just that's that idea of being able to put somebody in power, you want in power, by manipulating the electoral system, I think is now an idea which is in the public domain and it's going to be attracting a lot of attention. So right. that means that any vulnerabilities in the system are likely to be exploited unless we close those loopholes. So this, has been, this is my argument and it's been my argument for some time now that, that what we've seen happen since 2000 mm -hmm. is a growing array of these kinds of concerns. Right, mm -hmm. right. That continue to grow and magnify, mm -hmm. in, and each election has been slightly more mm -hmm. firm yes. about this. And yes. so it's not as if we've just put this idea on the table. We've put this idea on the table now for 16 years, mm -hmm. and it's been growing in credibility right, right. and salience and visibility within the media landscape yep. over time. So mm -hmm. I'm in complete right. So so one thing. This does, in fact, it raises two things. First of all, you've got the, the technical system, um, the, the 
the, effectively the, the knowledge system, but then you've got the human system around it. Mm -hmm. um, and they interact or intersect, but they're two distinct things. So you can imagine you could completely fix the mechanics of voting, mm -hmm. but you could still influence a population in how they vote um, very subtly and potentially very successfully. So we've got to deal with the two, but if you just look at the technical system, this is where I think we need to have a, a much bigger national conversation mm -hmm. around technologies that can actually increase resilience and, and decrease vulnerability. So for instance, blockchain is one technology where mm -hmm. in principle you may be able to find a way of implementing it so if anybody tampers with the system, it's very, very clear to anybody looking that it's been tampered with. Right. And the, the particular structural characteristics of uh, American politics at the moment mitigate against doing anything of the <laughs> right. sort. Yeah. Well, For two reasons. One is that the, the there's a single party in power, mm -hmm. uh, which means that there would be a great deal of skepticism about a national election engineering right. law mm -hmm. at right. the moment right. uh, for various, uh, for, for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, you know, and second, the polarization of all of our institutions uh, means that the thing that would be at the center of any such effort, which would be a, uh, a constitutional scale law, uh, and very possibly, in fact, a need to create a constitutional amendment, because mm -hmm. the Constitution is very clear mm -hmm. about who runs elections. Right. States run right. elections. Yep. They yes. design elections. Yep. And there's very little that the federal government can do to influence right. uh, national election practices. Right. So any effort um, even at national or at standard settings for election computing or technology, mm -hmm. right, would right. be unconstitutional. Correct. And the mess around the Voting Rights Act uh, demonstrates exactly the problem yep. that we've got, which is that they couldn't actually fix the Voting Rights Act in 2005, six mm -hmm. when they tried to fix it last time, and so they were left with a situation where they were still relying on 50-year-old, by that point, standards. Right. Yeah. And that was what the courts threw out. And so the, now, what I would expect is that we will see a lot of lawsuits. The right. reason being is that when they got rid of the voting parts of the Voting Rights Act, what they got rid of was what was called preclearance, which was the ability of the Justice Department to look at proposed rule changes mm -hmm. before the election mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and judge their impact on inequality sure. before the election. Yep. Mm -hmm. But that left in place the parts of the Voting Rights Act that allow the courts to act to redress harms created by new election rules in practice in elections. Right, so I would right. expect that we will see a whole series of lawsuits now in places like Wisconsin and North Carolina where there were significant rules changes. Yes. Oh, Siri. Oh, Thank yes. you, Siri. Siri is always the uninvited guest. <laughs> yes. Well, occasionally we invite her. Right. <laughs> So I would expect in places where there were significant rules changes before the election uh, that we will now see lawsuits. And this goes to sort of point number two 
about the, this past election, which is that we continue to see, and this adds to your concern, Andrew, uh, uh, ongoing systematic attempts on both sides to manipulate the rules of who gets to vote when. Right, yeah. and by both sides you mean both parties. Both Democrats and, and Republicans. Right. Yes. Sure. Yes. So Democrats have been on a campaign now for 15 years to uh, move towards uh, voting by mail, sure. mm -hmm. uh, opening up polling places for weeks ahead of time. Sure. Like we have here in Arizona. Right. right. And exactly. the whole state of Washington did only voting by mail yep. this time. Mm -hmm. Yep, and Oregon has done that now for several elections. Of course um, they have. Oregon's always going to be out in front <laughs> on that. Uh, and while Republicans have been looking at voter ID laws and other kinds of, uh, and well, and in particular in this case, uh, North Carolina and Wisconsin, they closed polling places before the election mm -hmm. uh, so that there were fewer early voting hours and so forth, right? right so it's right. a tug of war yeah. right. over who gets to vote when, which impacts who shows up at the polls and actually votes. Right. We know so that it does. So, so this um, actually is quite depressing. So we've just been through an election cycle where people have hugely criticized Donald Trump for having this mentality of winning at any cost. Mm -hmm. And yet, when you look at the broader system over a number of years and decades, that's been exactly the mentality. Correct. It's about mm -hmm. how do you manipulate the system so we win, not how do we serve the people, it seems. Right, and this goes back to a variety of decisions, both political and legal, uh, that have determined forever that, uh, well, I don't know forever, but uh, you, you're not obliged to vote right. in the United yep, States. Right, that's true. And right. as a result, right. people don't, and turn out uh, for the last, you know, several decades worth of elections has been in the 60% range. Mm -hmm. And that means you can win by turning out more mm -hmm. of your folks than the other yep. side right, turns right. out yeah. of theirs. And so you have to figure out how to do that. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and in a polarized, very close, you know, environment in which it's within shooting distance without right. fundamentally changing your party's politics and doing the hard work mm -hmm. of getting out and convincing new voters that they should vote for you right. uh, in the you know in the absence of wanting to do that it's easier to try to of course <laughs> and well so if you follow that to its, if you follow that to its logical conclusion what we've seen with Trump's campaign is just the logical extension of the game that people have been playing on both sides of the aisle absolutely mm -hmm. right I think that's absolutely right, and and there's no evidence uh, that anybody uh, wants to try to fix that. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it's certainly you know we've equally seen massive amounts of money funneled into voter registration mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. drives, mm -hmm. uh, precisely in, um, in in the goal of that. Right. Know, in the service yeah. of that particular goal. Uh, and so what we have is this bizarre system uh, in which, at least for the moment, the counting part seems to work, mm -hmm. but we have this massive political exercise uh, mm -hmm. with regard to who gets to be counted yes. mm -hmm. that happens beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> right. yep. Yep. <laughs> and then we 
count properly, and we say, good, we're done. <laughs> ah, yeah. Yeah. We've got a president. This has got analogies <laughs> in so many other systems where you, you define the rules, <coughs> you define the rules so everything looks right and proper. It's just you don't ask the question of who made the rules in the first place. That's right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the side that did not, was not successful in this election or any election, what is their motivation to not seek to change the structure or the election right process? Is it because it would be fundamentally destabilizing uh, to what we understand, and we talked about the American Dream recently in podcasts, and you know, um, d does it destabilize this sort of shared understanding of the American Dream or what it means to participate in America, or is it uncertainty about how a new or a different electoral system would work and how a party machine then would function within that system? Like what, I mean, I'm sure it's a bunch of reasons, but. Where's the inertia to not change? Right. Yeah, or the barriers. Yeah, I mean, I think. As we both look expectantly at Clark. Yes. Like, give us an answer, please, <laughs> no. sir. So I don't know that this is an answer, <laughs> but in the United States, um, we have part of our civic epistemology, if you will, the ways that we think about knowledge generally with respect to a whole variety of political and policy processes uh, is a, a key part of that is competition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it is precisely competition right up to the edge of the rules. Right, right. Right? So you yeah. see that in football, uh -huh, mm -hmm. uh -huh. right? What is deflate gate, you know, and, the, and Tom Brady and the footballs? What is um, uh, uh, various, uh, you know, other kinds? I mean, you know, you hear the coaches extol the virtues uh, on particularly on defense of running right up to the edge. Right, of right. Hard hits. You, mm -hmm. you look for, for example, any edge that you've got to get right. that advantage. Yep. yep. And then, um, uh, so we see this in the law, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you know, go back to a TV show. This probably predates most of our right. audience, but like L.A. Law, right? Oh. Your job. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that old. <laughs> yes. Our audience right? isn't that old either. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. Your right. job as a lawyer <laughs> yep. is to win uh -huh. right up to the very edge yep. and maybe even a little over it if you can get away with it. Right? Absolutely. Well, you look at the debate around taxes. I mean, Donald oh, Trump basically yeah. oh, said yeah. it, he was mm -hmm. almost sort of obliged to sort of find right. the loopholes and use them to win. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Obligation yeah. and glee, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no. right. Yes. Separate. Yes. Yes. yes I, I agree. So, anyways, we have this <laughs> commitment to hard-headed competition, mm -hmm. and um, you know, and I think partly because we have this uh, a, a, a political culture that's very thoroughly seeped in a particular vision of the law as mm -hmm. the sort of constraining uh -huh. piece, right? Then, you know, and, uh, and we have lots of people trained in the law, trained to think about, you know, how do you write and use the legal rules 
yep. in a legal way yeah. to get to your goal. Right. I yes. think that yep. this, you know, and naturally inclines campaigns to yeah. sort of mm -hmm. yeah. think in these very terms. And they believe that the other side is doing it too. Right. Oh, yeah. Right, uh, right. And so, so, so to me, this raises a huge question. So if you look at the, the foundations of the Constitution and yeah. the foundations of the democratic principles under which we live, uh, there is a strong sense that those frameworks and principles are there to serve people, to serve society. And yet we've grown a system around that that serves the competitors almost at the expense in some time, in some cases, of society. So how do we develop ideas and understandings and mechanisms to change this? And what's really bothering me is thinking very practically of who's going to fund this? So for instance, mm -hmm. looking at, at new technical systems to ensure the resilience of voting systems, presumably the government won't fund this. I'm not even sure they can fund well, research. Whoever well, they can. The so they right. did it. They did it after 2000. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So yes. one of the things we did after 2000 was we had had something called the Help America Vote Act, mm -hmm. and because the feds can't do can't mandate mm -hmm. national standards, what they did was provide uh -huh. a lot of money. Yes. Uh -huh. And they said, okay. if you want this money, then you must meet minimum federal standards for what your new electoral system right mm. right okay. okay so you can do so that so there's a loophole yes so, yeah. but again i'll come back to you know the winners in this particular election now have sufficient control mm -hmm. at least for 2 years of all the institutional levers mm -hmm. that yeah. it's unlikely they're going to want to have the kind of systematic inquiry into the right. electoral system. Right. Because for them, it ain't broke. Right. So why right, fix right, it? Right. So the third piece, which in some ways is, uh, well, I certainly think it's as intriguing as the other two to think about, and that is the role that the poll aggregators played mm -hmm. prior to the election. Mm -hmm. We now know uh, that the poll aggregators were probably pretty darn close. Mm -hmm. uh, those who thought it was going to be closer, a closer election were better, were closer to the final numbers than those who thought it was going to be a blowout. Mm -hmm. um, but Hillary Clinton is going to have won by something like approximately three million votes, so, yeah, which so is roughly three percent, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which yep. is roughly what, they were predicting. what the polls yeah. were predicting yeah. uh, going in. Um, uh, there was, um, amongst the poll aggregators, a fight right before the election uh, over whether or not Nate Silver, who I think holds the title, mm -hmm. certainly before this election, held the title as the reigning, reigning champion. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Of poll aggregators. And we get back to winning again. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, where he was hugely criticized in an extraordinarily arrogant way by a group out of Princeton and by a, a group uh, out of, or certainly a group touting the folks at the New York Times where Nate Silver was and left. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then the New York Times got somebody else to come in and do poll aggregation mm -hmm. for them in this election. Um, so obviously there's a lot of kind of internalized, mm -hmm. competitive yeah, yeah. sort of landscape going on in this space. But, um, but roundly and arrogantly, Silver was roundly and arrogantly criticized 
for being for expressing his uncertainty. Right. Something which we I think would laud him for right. in this right. moment. Right. Be right. clear about your uncertainty, yeah. explore it. He was attacked among other things for being too rooted in the world of baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. which I thought was interesting because particularly as I reflected back in the days after the election, uh, because, um, you know, one of the things you know in baseball, and you learn very quickly in baseball statistics, is that the statistically better team doesn't always win. Right. Right? And so I think Nate had been conditioned by that experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in baseball, where you have 180 games or 100 however many games they have over the course of a season, mm-hmm. I mean, you get that repi- re- repetition of winning and losing a lot, yeah. and yeah. so you learn a lot mm-hmm. that way about how statistics play out in practice, Right, right. that some of these other people who were basically ivory tower modelers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Not were basically saying, look, it, yeah. right, oh, right. absolutely, mm-hmm. there's things wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm all about pragmatic. <laughs> right, right. I was trying to avoid firing <laughs> into the structure, the edifice in which we sit at this moment. <laughs> um, you know, who basically had their models and were convinced their models were right. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Uh, and were so convinced their models were right that they were willing to go out on a limb and mm-hmm. say that, you know, Silver was being an idiot because he was saying that there was still a yeah. 25 to 30 to 35% chance that Trump would win. And part of what contributed to the shift was, you know, the weirdnesses of the Electoral College, which mm-hmm. which Silver was being very cognizant of mm-hmm. as, as I watched what he was saying about the election. Part of it was there clearly was movement there were more undecideds going into the polling booth mm-hmm. than historically there are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they broke towards Trump, mm-hmm. which they often do. If, you, if And, you know, Nate has written about that. I've been watching him for four election cycles now, so I've mm-hmm. seen a lot mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. his talk about what he's learned over the year. Um, but I think the biggest thing about all of this is the extent to which those polling aggregations were taken as facts. Right, mm-hmm. yes. And not just by the media, but by yeah. lots of people. Yeah. Right. Right. And I suspect, we know, I mean, we back in the 60s and 70s, there were no laws against reporting the results of elections on television before the right. polls closed. Right, yes. yep. yeah. And one of the things that changed after 1980 were a series of laws that were put in Mm -hmm. place that prohibited the news media from reporting the results of elections before Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. polls closed. And the reason is because there's very clear evidence that when you reported who was going to win, it influenced influenced who showed up to vote. I have a question. Does that law extend to... Congressional races, for example, reporting Marco Rubio while polls in California are still open. Is that, does that fall no. under the auspices of that law? No. So that law, I believe, not a lawyer, haven't looked. Okay. 
but I believe what it says is that you can't report the results of an election if that election is still okay. Is still right. going. If there are still polls that sure. are open so for that particular election. election. Right. Yes. So it's not then. And it may only cover the, the mm -hmm. national laws, may mm -hmm. only cover the presidential. Yeah. Right. So it seems to me like that could be problematic, right? Like that, even if that law is enforced and, and is held, if on the West Coast, people are seeing like one party totally dominating, you know, congressional races. On the East Coast, then that could, it, it, in theory, it may influence have, it voting. May have an influence, yes. Yeah. But I, I'm assuming where you were going is looking at the polls as a proxy for actual results. That's right. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah. And the suspicion that many people said. I can vote for the Green Party mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because I'm not throwing, I'm not harming Hillary Clinton's it, chance. It's of a protest yeah. vote, right? Yeah, yes. because I, it's okay to cast a protest vote. Yeah. Uh -huh. You had other people, I suspect, who said didn't feel the need to go out because it was clear she was going to win, mm -hmm. right? And yep. I was busy that day. Yep, mm -hmm. yep. You know, in other words, a whole series of ways in mm -hmm. which you could get to outcomes where people didn't vote. Mm -hmm. Yes, yep. In ways that they might have. Again, a whole lot of nodes. If it had been thought that That's right. yeah, the election was closer. Tremendous number of nodes in a complex system, yeah. which is to say that a number of nodes could affect the outcome of one other node, but one other node can also affect the outcome of a bunch of different nodes. Right, yeah. right. So, so actually, we saw this very clearly in the Brexit vote in the UK, where you had voter remorse the day after with people just saying, I wanted to protest against being in Europe, but I never dreamt that my vote would actually right. count. Yeah. Right. And of course, their votes did count. Right. Yeah. Whoops. Yep. Yes. Whoops. <laughs> so, you know, a very interesting uh, illustration mm -hmm. of the way in which uh, big data, as it moves forward, sure, yes. may. Mm -hmm create forms of dynamics because of a kind of... So essentially, the, so to me it seems like there's a danger of creating a false reality or a yeah, false future. Right. Of course, you, yeah. and plus the fact you've got the combination of data, so people are taught you trust data, you trust evidence, you trust experts, so mm -hmm. now you've got very adamant experts saying we have the data and this is what it says the future is going to be like. Mm -hmm. That's right. But they were wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, that's right. Yes. Well, and there, uh, which then has caused a, maybe a backpedaling of trust of experts. I, so I, I, that I don't know because there's this broader trend of people sort of questioning the, the role of experts mm -hmm. in evidence anyway, but may, maybe yeah. it's part of this. Right. I yes. think, and it's um, because, well, I think it, uh, raises the possibility that evidence may not be true or evidence may not be all it's the cracked, up, all to it's cracked <laughs> up to be or the only story right, right or right. just because this expert said here's the evidence doesn't mean 
because maybe I don't trust this expert to tell me what the evidence I, is. So, so maybe, I, yeah. I really struggle with this. So now we've got post-truth as being, what is it, the Oxford English Dictionary, is it? Mm -hmm. Word of the year mm -hmm. or sort of phrase of the year? Oh, I um, thought it was... Um, it's... I think a couple... Surreal, I think. No, I think that was... That up. was... That was Oh, I can't remember Whatever. which one, but, but post-truth is, is one of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I'm actually conflicted here because as, as somebody that does research that is steeped and in sort of the foundation of, of evidence, mm -hmm. um, it worries me when I see a blatant disregard for evidence. But at the same time, I can deeply understand how people will be suspicious of elites and experts saying, trust us because we have the evidence. Mm -hmm. And then it seems like that evidence is smoke and mirrors. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said about in this particular space, but it's very clear to me that truth is still something that matters mm -hmm. to people quite deeply. Yep. Um, people have been decrying the end of truth for a long time and really what they're complaining about is that lots of people don't like their truth of course yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but right. if you look at the way that people behave they clearly behave as if they still believe that there are facts in the world right mm -hmm. both with respect to the act on things that they think are facts mm -hmm. and they normatively support the idea that we should use facts mm -hmm. to guide decision making. Yes. Yeah, Those are both true statements. So uh, still, we are clearly, however, in a place, and this is where I think we need to, to think hard about this, where the institutions that for a half century or more we have relied on in this country to make the facts that we have used to guide decision making mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. have let are more controversial mm -hmm. um, yes. it, yep. certainly within and are also systematically being undone mm -hmm. um, by various kinds of uh, various kinds of activities that range from um, widely popular radio shows that systematically lambast both particular mm -hmm. factual claims right, and right. communities that have historically been important generators of factual claims mm -hmm. right right uh, to uh, efforts to undermine the resource base uh, of uh, those institutions, both in the federal government, where we have seen uh, data and knowledge-generating ins institutions face budget cuts, right, uh, right. as part of a general, both general strategies of cutting discretionary budgets at the federal level, and also specific strategies mm -hmm. of reducing particular budgets, and I suspect we're about to see much yeah. more of that yeah. Yeah. Um, and so there are lots of things that are um, weighing in yeah. 
to leave us in a situation where our, you know, and I think the election, well, the first thing we talked about this is related to this, where our institutional ability to make knowledge is weaker than it has been and is less trusted right. than yeah. it has been. And I think we need a systematic effort to rebuild those institutions and their confidence doesn't necessarily have to be the same institution. Right, right. But I do actually think it will be one of the things that um, Miran Rahi writes about extensively in his most recent book, which is called Imagined Democracies, is the degree to which that kind of shared fact base is very important for the ability of people to think that they live in a democracy that's treating them fairly and well. Right. So and, and so it, we're seeing, I don't think it's an accident that we're seeing mm -hmm. all this consternation about and, and, and concern about truthfulness right. alongside of a rise again, it's not the only time in American history that this has happened, about concerns about corruption and, and other kinds of inappropriate political behaviors mm -hmm. that would right. undermine democracy. So, I think so these are tied together. And by the way, I think you know, in the early parts of the 20th century where you had you know, the famous debates about yellow journalism mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and all of that, I, thought we, I think we saw very similar. Yeah. Right, yeah. right, right. So, so underlying a lot of that is this idea of trust. Um, and of course, with most of these situations, ultimately you've got to decide whether to trust someone. Uh -huh. um, and I, th I think this actually raises two vulnerabilities that we've seen. One, um, Jamie and Ira mentioned in a podcast mm -hmm. recently, and that is um, if what you're saying makes no sense to somebody. So if somebody's going to lose their job, their livelihood, mm -hmm. and what you're saying just makes their life worse, why should why they, should trust, they you? trust you? You may yeah. have the facts, the evidence, but mm -hmm. you're not helping them in any way. Mm -hmm. So that undermines trust. Right. Mm -hmm. But you've also got this, this problem where if we're in a society where the norm is to assume that people are trustworthy, and, and generally we do. If you have a conversation with somebody, you're not immediately thinking they're a liar until they prove themselves not. You, you, no, you generally sort of okay, you're, going, okay. you're, you're, you're going. You're going to the store. You're sure, in the street. You're talking sure. with friends. You assume that people are trustworthy. Sure. But it means we've got a huge vulnerability because if somebody comes in and starts um, peddling in mistruths mm -hmm. with the look of absolute conviction that these are truths, yeah. we have very little resilience against that. We, as a society yeah. and as individuals, we don't know how to respond to that sort of behavior. Well, and I think maybe we, you know, in a future podcast, we can dig into the issues around trust. And, you yeah. know, I, th I, I wrote about this a little bit uh, in my dissertation that you, you know, I, you're welcome. You didn't have to read. Um, <laughs> I gotta have but, to read it. Though. But I do think that there is a distinction between individual level trust and institutional level yes, trust. You yes. know that uh, uh, at the end of the day it comes there back is. to individuals, of course, and yes. um, that is a topic that we shall not tackle today yes. in this podcast. Yes. But I think that uh, you know, I think we did a little 
bit of some post-game useful analysis from the election. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're going away a little bit more depressed maybe than when we came in. But yeah. It's, it's yeah. stuff I think that we need to dig into. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that uh, if you want optimism, Oh, I you. always want <laughs> optimism. All right, Go, round us out, round us out with a bit of optimism. Platitude in there, you know I love that. <laughs> we say silver lining. Right. Okay, silver lining. Bring it, bring it. <laughs> uh, there, there's no question in my mind that the uh, knowledge institutions of the 20th century, as you know, good as they were at creating. Uh, a factual basis for making collective decisions in a democratic society um, were also uh, responsible in a variety of ways uh, for the kinds of outcomes that we got. Mm -hmm. And there were many ways in which technological development in the 20th century did not serve uh, everyone's Mm -hmm. best interests and a lot of that the knowledge institutions were complicit in mm -hmm. and so if there's a silver lining in the unbundling of our knowledge institutions it's that we have a chance as we rebuild them to design them better through systematic attention to the question of what that would mean right yeah. of course we could also Design them worse, but um, right, <laughs> we have an opportunity. But we have an opportunity, yes. I think, uh, to to do well uh, by the future. Great. All right. Good. Well, note. to be continued. Thanks, Clark. Thank Thanks. you very much. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Please subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends and let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Future Out Loud.